Hello, it's Paul Scott here and welcome to my weekly podcast summarising um, what's gone on in the previous week through the small cap value reports that I've been writing on stockopedia.com for 10 years now. Uh, ably assisted by uh, Graham Neary, who's doing a fantastic job um, at the moment. He 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 went off for a, a year or two to do other things, but he's back with us now and doing uh, doing fantastic work, as I'm sure you all agree. Those of you who do subscribe to Stockopedia, if you don't, why not? <laughs> you can get a free trial for Stockopedia for a couple of weeks or something, so no risk. Give it a go, see what you think. Anyway, we've had some brilliant discussions this week as well on the um, on the Stockopedia community. Thanks to everyone who's contributed. The, 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 there's so many things going on in the economy and the market. The discussion has absolutely come alive with some brilliant stuff from the readers. So, And it's moderated as well, which means that if people start posting uh, abusive rubbish, uh, they get zapped, which is um, more a deterrent than anything most of the time. Anyway, I want to focus this podcast on the, the macro market stuff, so I'm going to really, really rattle through the individual companies. So on Monday, I looked at Pendragon, the car dealership. Now, that's had a revived bid approach, uh, which was bouncing around earlier this year. Well, it's come in, the, the major shareholder has come in with a revised bid at 29p. I don't think it's a generous bid. It's on about eight, that's about eight and a half times forward PE. But um, given the current situation, of course, with all the uncertainty going on, maybe uh, maybe uh, it's worth, uh, you know, just grabbing the money and um, seeing where you go on that one. The other thing is these things are very, very well property backed, freehold property backed, the car dealers. However, we've seen particularly in the last week with long guilt yield soaring, properties uh, valuations are, are, are declining a lot. So maybe that's less of a supportive factor now for the car dealers. I don't know. Something to bear in mind. I also looked at Music Magpie, M-M-A-G. It's another profit warning. I'm sorry, but I've had to mark this as uninvestable because, I mean, I just don't see that they've got a, a viable business model. It's now forecast to actually be loss-making. So the big profits from a couple of years ago have now completely evaporated. And it's um, <clears throat> taking on a lot of bank debt to fuel growth in, it seems to sort of forward subsidise second-hand mobile phones and then rents them out. But I just don't see that it's a viable business model. It's not forecast to make uh, profits in the future. It's been incredibly volatile. Uh, that's now really just a share for traders, I think. The, you know, there, there are some opportunities with some of these things that absolutely crash on a profit warning. You can sometimes, and you did with Music Bank Magpie, get a sharp rebound. So for traders only, I think that one. Graham on Monday looked at Devolver Digital. Um, Microlize and Concurrent Technology. So see Monday's report if any of those interest you. I'm not going to speak for Graham. Obviously, he's a, an independent writer and gives his own independent views. We don't have a house view on any share at Stockopedia. Each writer does their own thing. We tend to agree, though, on practically everything. OK, on Tuesday, I spent pretty much the whole day on Saga, S-A-G-A, -A, which I do still have a, a personal holding in. This is the uh, cruise ship holidays and insurance group focused on the over 50s. Now, um, the H1 numbers were out, interim numbers, and they were pretty disappointing. Um, not a good performance and the full year guidance was lowered so this was a profit warning however it's it is now profitable so um, there's been a recovery from obviously with the cruise ships from the uh, pandemic era and uh, bookings are pretty strong 
Um, they've, they hedge their forward fuel costs um, one year in advance, although other costs are rising. And they did say on the river cruises they're having to sort of include more in the ticket price uh, to make it appeal. And they're also, um, what was it, having to give early early booking discounts. So a bit of pressure there. But generally speaking, the, the cruise business looks as if it's doing OK. And the travel business is sort of gradually rebuilding. Um, <clears throat> the insurance side of the business uh, didn't sound great. So um, and a lot of that is it's focused on motor policies and home policies mainly and a little bit of travel insurance as well uh, now obviously it's a trusted brand and that's really the long-term value in this I think in that uh, you know and the valuation is now so tiny the shares have dropped about three quarters or something in the last year so I think everything needs to be seen through that prism yes Saga is not performing particularly well not as well as hoped anyway it is profitable again now um, of course, but nowhere near what what I'd previously hoped. So the recovery is taking a lot longer and is not as strong as I'd hoped. So, you know, I'm not in any way uh, trying to gloss over any of that. I think that is the, the uh, essential stuff. Now, the main discussions, as always, we, we have had a spirited discussion about this on Stockopedia amongst the readers. People, Some people don't share my view. That's absolutely fine. As long as they back up their opinions with facts and figures, I welcome <coughs> bearish comments on all all stocks we want to have a two-way discussion what i don't like is when people put strident and mildly abusive comments up which doesn't help anyone and head office take a pretty dim view of that i don't get involved in the moderation of comments at all uh, it doesn't interest me i want to just focus on on, on analyzing the facts and figures but the office uh, don't like it when comments stray into personal abuse so please don't do it now um the debt again this is up for discussion here but the debt on on saga i'm personally happy with it's too high um, but mo the bulk of the debt is for the uh, ship loans and the lender proved very, very um, uh, accommodating throughout the pandemic, uh, uh, deferring repayments for two years. Those have now restarted. And the next most of the, the, the rest of the debt is not bank debt, it's bonds, which is secure funding. The next bond is due for repayment in 2024. That's 150 million pounds. They've got more than that in the bank, in cash. So it really isn't an issue at all. However, <coughs> I do accept that if trading really plummets at Saga, and if it becomes loss-making in the future, which is not forecast, but if it does, then the covenants on the ship loans could come under pressure and might need a waiver. But the, uh, as I say, the lender's been very accommodative on that in the past, so not necessarily a problem. The bonds don't have um, trading-type um, uh, covenants on them at all, which is why I think bond funding is such a good idea. It's so much safer. Now, one of the readers uh, got, got their knickers in a twist over the re revolving credit facility, the RCF, of 50 million. But the, and the, there is a covenant on that. But the point is the RCF isn't drawn down at all. So if you haven't drawn down a debt facility, the covenant, and you don't expect to, which is what the going concern statement confirmed, then the covenants don't actually matter. And that's only a very small... Um, uh, uh, it, it's a backup facility, basically, and things would have to get really bad for them to even need the RCF at all. So I can see that in a very severe downside, far more severe than the case set out in the going concern note, which was fine, uh, then there is a potential downside on Saga if trading absolutely collapses, then it might need to do an equity raise. But that's such an extreme possibility that I don't think ringing the alarm bells over 
the need for an equity raise is helpful when there clearly is not a need for an equity raise right now. Um, now Graham looked. At, uh, Graham really held the fort on on Tuesday. He looked at Biffa, which there's been a, a bid for that, but a bit less than the price that it was expected, I believe. Specialist lender S and U. Graham looked at. He's looked at that one before and knows quite a lot about it. Digital Box, a tiny little um, thing, and Smooth. I don't know if that's the right way to pronounce it. That's an e-conveyancing company. So see Tuesday's report if any of those float your boat. Right, moving on to Wednesday then, I looked to Card Factory, C-A-R-D. Now, there's some quite positive things going on here. Um, its interim results came out. Um, now, looking at them, there's the, the tends to, it's moved back, back into profit in H1 of 14.3 million, or 10.8 million if you, when you strip out one-offs. Um, but it does, I look back, and historically there is a, a, an H2 bias to trading, so H2 profits should be more than H1. So that's actually a pretty decent level of profitability it's got back into. The Outlook comments I quite liked as well. Um, it's got positive like-for-likes in um, H2 so far. Um, they did say they're worried about um, wage inflation, but they plan to mitigate that with uh, price rises. And Card Factory tends to be a value operator anyway, which um, we're seeing generally, aren't we, in, in not just in retail, but in hospitality as well, that companies that offer a value for money product seem to be, uh, unsurprisingly really, holding up better than other more sort of mid-market type of companies. So I think if you've got a good value proposition for customers, you'll probably be okay. And Card Factory, I think, sits in that in that category. Now, um, the big problem with this, I'm afraid, is still the balance sheet. It's totally dependent on bank debt and it's 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 too high 96.6 million uh, which means it can't pay any dividends for the foreseeable future i'm just not comfortable with that now it has hedged its energy costs to september 2024 so that's clearly very good so on balance then i think um Card Factory. I'm now. I was negative about it. I think I'm probably now neutral. Actually, uh, I should also say the going concern statement sounded all right. Uh, it's just this complete reliance on bank debt that I'm not terribly comfortable with, and you know that will need to be reduced, which means they won't be able to pay dividends for a while. So, I think overall probably neutral on Card Factory. I can see why some people like it, but it's not for me. Right, now we come on to this week's mystery share. So just to be clear on this, this is a share that I, I think is the best thing I've found this week. And I'm sorry to the internet, but I've decided to hold these back for the Stockopedia subscribers, seeing as they're paying me to actually write the report. So I think I ought to give them some exclusive content. And I thought I ought to professionalise my jingle. So here we go. Instead of me going do-do-do-do, here's the new mystery share jingle. Oh, hang on. No, that doesn't sound mysterious enough. Sorry, I, I pressed the wrong button there. Uh, so anyway, this sh the mystery uh, share is something I found which um, is trading well, um, has um, a very, very low single digit, well, not very low single digit, but it has a single digit P ratio, and the dividend yield actually exceeds the... PE, which is very unusual. And this is a business where I think the dividend yield looks sustainable as well. So I think this is a cracking value share and it's trading well. So that's this week's mystery mystery share. Stop to subscribers. Look at Wednesday's report for that one. 
The next one that almost became a mystery share as well was Finsbury's Foods, F-I-F. Now, I've always liked this share in the past. It's very well run. It's, it's a bakery, a specialist bakery. They make um, a celebration cakes, birthday cakes and all that sort of thing. And they mainly supply the supermarkets. They do other stuff as well, but that's the core business. Now, <clears throat> there was a really good webinar from them on via Investor Meet Company that I uh, I think value, value investors should have a look at. It's, um, yeah, it's tra it's trading very well. Um, what's the most important thing is that uh, Finsbury Food is taking cost inflation in its stride. It's managing to negotiate price rises with the supermarkets, which, as, you, as I'm sure you can imagine, is incredibly difficult. But they're managing it. Now, one of the reasons I sold my Finsbury Foods shares when I had a small position in it previously, when the inflation rate started to really soar, was pre precisely this issue that I was worried, would it be able to cope with higher inflation? Well, the answer is yes, it can. And actually, the balance sheet looks OK. I think this is very good. Um, the only thing I would say with Finsbury Food, it doesn't tend to command a high valuation, even in the good times. So how much upside is uh, there on the share price? I don't know. And the other thing I did think about the supermarkets as well is that Asda, I think, and William Morrison were both bought out um, in highly leveraged deals, which makes me wonder that with all the competition from the German expanding cheaper chains, could you conceivably in a deep recession get to a point where Asda and Morrison's might even go bust? Uh, due to their very high levels of debt. And also co-op worries me a bit because I just don't see why it exists. I use a co-op convenience store and the product generally, I think, is really uh, overpriced. So you, you know, the only reason you go to a co-op is because not, there's not anything better nearby. So will co-op survive as well? So um, I, hopefully Finsbury Food have got um, trade credit insurance over the um, supermarket um, invoices that are between them being issued and, and paid. So I think that would be a good question to ask management. But so anyway, I like Finsbury Food. A profit warning from Pressure Technologies, P-R-E-S. This is very small now. I looked at this and <coughs> it says it's about to, to breach the banking covenants, which is um, a really, really bad look. And it, But it's only a very small amount of money that it owes Lloyds Bank. It seems to have been already halved from the previous amount, only 2.4 million. So that should be fixable. But as we know, as I'll come on to later in the week, companies that are running into funding problems right now um, can you can see absolutely brutally discounted placings to get them out of trouble. So I can, and, and given the fact that Pressure Technologies hasn't really made any money now for years, unfortunately, I think it's probably um, one to just ditch and, and move on. I can't see any any upside to that. Now, the big one on um, Wednesday was Boohoo.com. Again, opinions are divided on this. Obviously, I've been catastrophically wrong about e-commerce shares. Boohoo's moved down about 90%, along with ASOS, along with pretty much all the e-commerce companies that floated last year. Um, so it's been a massive downward sector move. I think there are going to be bargains in there. I'm not exactly sure which ones are bargains. I think I think Boohoo, uh, I do hold the share, as I say. I, I'm calling the low on this. I think Boohoo's now bottomed out or could have bottomed out. Um, there are all sorts of reasons to, to believe that might be the case. But equally, uh, you know, a lot of people are fixated with the bear arguments. And, you know, I think you can, some of the bear arguments have, well, the bear arguments have, have obviously been right over the last year. But everything uh, everything has a price. It's not at all financially distressed. It's got tons of liquidity with £315 million cash in the bank. 
think, but that that has come from a borrowings of 325 million. Now I can't find out who the lender is of the 325 million. They haven't disclosed it, and they haven't disclosed if the, or, or, or there are any covenants either. So I think we need to be told who who whose lender is so that we can actually assess the risk. Um, the um, it's trading around break even, and you know some people with a, a negative agenda on the stock want to question that. That's up to them. But uh, the bearish arguments don't don't stand up to scrutiny in my view. Basically, I think people need to be clear. If you say, they say, oh, it's not profitable, you have to say on what measure. On statutory profits, I agree, it's not profitable. But on the adjusted measures, and the adjustments are reasonable in my view, it is profitable. So actually, both. Uh, sets of views are correct, but I think be more specific if you're going to say, oh, and, and you know, if if it, if you if you want to say, oh, it hasn't got a strong balance sheet. Well, I think it has. Well, if you think it because it's only got 10 million net debt and it's got 130 million in freehold property assets, which are saleable assets, they are not. It's not cash burn if you buy a freehold property. Um, cash burn is where you're running the business at a, an operating loss and cash is literally being burnt to keep the company going. Uh, um, but when you buy a freehold property, that is discretionary capex. You've made a decision to buy that freehold. And the very fact that you've just bought a freehold, a substantial freehold, tells me that you've got sound finances and um, that you're not in any way financially distressed. So I appreciate that views are wildly differing on this one and I understand why I'm very happy to listen to uh, the the bearish arguments on it but I think be more specific in what you're saying if you're going to say something bearish back it up with facts and figures and that's absolutely fine because then I can think about it and you know maybe in some cases you think well yeah okay they've got a point um, I think again with Boohoo it's fine as it is and it's cheap as it is providing trading stabilizers uh, and also they can dial the marketing spend up or down. Bear in mind they're spending 200 million quid a year on marketing, which which is totally discretionary. If the business ever got into a, a position where it was losing money, they can dial that right down. They could halve it in the blink of an eye. So profitability with these online companies is very much dial up the number you want because of the huge size of discretionary um, marketing spend and also all the capex is discretionary they've made a decision to automate these warehouses which will save 25 million a year and make them much more um, efficient that was a policy decision it's not cash burn it's well, they've decided to invest because the ROI on that investment is very good another factor with Boohoo is that it's been supporting the new brands that it acquired in the last year or two and the, the modus operandi with Boohoo it buys the brands from usually administrators, and it then spends several years building them up. So it builds up a much broader product range, and it spends a lot on marketing, and that creates really good growth um, in the in the new brands, but it costs money in the short term. Um, well, um, they're doing pretty well, I think, on Karen Millen, and several of the other new brands seem to be uh, generating good growth. But what that does mean, of course, is that must be masking quite serious declines in the core brands. Uh, Boohoo and Pretty Little Thing. It's a pity that they don't split that out, but I think it's uh, uh, definitely the case that the core brands are struggling. So, um, which is a, bear, a valid bear point on Boohoo. Um, <clears throat> and I think the Chinese competitor Shein must be having some sort of impact, even though, you know, a week or two 
no, I think it's nearer two weeks to get the product from Shein mean is, is, is a major disadvantage for them because the Boohoo younger customer wants something they can wear on a night out tomorrow or the day after tomorrow. So, um, so the jury's still out on Boohoo, but personally, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a bold call here. Well, I did on Wednesday's report when it was about 33p, and I said it I, I still believe that it might have put in a bottom at 33p. Might, emphasis on the word might. We don't know. We can't predict the future. Um, but the interesting thing was, after plunging, I think, about 15% or 20% or something on the initial uh, profit warning, because it was a profit warning, guidance has been lowered on Boohoo, uh, no denying that, that's factual, um, <clears throat> it actually ended the day slightly up. Now, I think it's very interesting when you get to a point where stocks that have been in a steep decline and lost 90% of their value put out another profit warning, uh, uh, which is that it's basically going to be trading around break even, um, and the stock actually bounces from the lows and ends up up on the day. That's very interesting, isn't it? I mean, traders will be able to tell you more than me, but that seems to me you might possibly be at or near a bottom for this share, providing, again, things don't, don't continue going badly wrong. So it all depends, doesn't it? So we'll have to see. But I'm, <clears throat> I've now started gently buying back uh, more of my position in Boohoo. I think risk-reward uh, looks quite good at this stage, in my opinion. But I've been completely wrong about it over the last year, so completely ignore me because uh, I, I could well be wrong again. Next, I looked at a profit warning from something called Glantus Holdings, G-L-A-N. Now, this, I think, um, it's an Irish tiny software business, but it was floated with a, you know, a really ropey balance sheet. So now it's struggling for cash and it's having to, to try and raise more money from a high cost lender. Well, that's appalling. It only floated in 2021. People, you know, brokers must not float things with ropey balance sheets. It's, um, it's very bad form. But, you know, at the end of the day, nobody had to buy shares in it. And I think it's too risky now, so I'd avoid that. CML Microsystems, a rare beacon of light in a horrible market, put out a lovely update, actually, on Wednesday. I think that looks really interesting. I've covered it extensively in um, <clears throat> uh, a small cap value report earlier this year, where I looked up the... It's got a lot of surplus cash and a lot, a lot of surplus property. So I did some Googling on Google Maps and actually found the site an aerial photo of it, found the planning application and so on. So I did quite a bit of work on it. So <clears throat> have a look at that in our um, Small Cap Value Report archive if you're interested. But it looks good. Also, Graham on Wednesday looked at K3 Capital. Ticket is K3. 3C. Uh, a lot of the readers were interested in this, actually. We had quite a bit of reader comments on it as well. Um, I won't preempt what uh, Graham wrote, but have a look at Wednesday's report for that one, which looks uh, does look quite interesting, if they can keep the deal flow going. Right, on to Thursday's report. Now, we again, Wednesday and Thursday, we covered absolutely loads of companies, and some of them are quite interesting. Now, um, I looked at XPF, which is XP Factory. Now, I should emphasise I had, do have a personal long position in this, and I'm looking to buy more once um, the, the, the price sort of settles down. Like most hospitality companies, it's just grinding down all the time. Now, it put out interims. This is, I've mentioned it before, it's a re really rapid rollout of two hospitality formats, Escape Hunt, the escape rooms thing, which previously I've dismissed, but the more digging I've done on it, actually, it's quite interesting. The unit of the site economics are that it's half a million a year revenues, 30% EBITDA. So that's 150k 
cash flow, positive cash flow per site per year. Um, some of them are franchised, some of them are uh, owned. And if you look on TripAdvisor, the, um, the escape hunt sites have fantastic reviews, basically 100% customer reviews from hundreds of customers. So this format of escape hunt, I think, is a lot better than I thought it was. But the transformational acquisition that XP Factory did last year was Boom Battle Bars. I've talked about this before. You can Google it and have a look at the format. They are rolling this out incredibly quickly and they're getting amazing deals from landlords and the site economics on these are are brilliant for example the cardiff site that the company's just taken back in um in a buyout from the franchisee uh, the the CEO said in a, a recent video that its its revenues for that one site in Cardiff are four million a year. Um, now bear in mind the franchisees pay a ten percent revenue share to XP Factory, so that must mean that XP Factory were getting four hundred grand a year in um, in, um, in, uh, in 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 franchise fees from that branch. They've just bought it back from the franchisee for six hundred grand initial payment, another six hundred grand in six months' time, and eight hundred grand in a year. Um, although I don't know quite how the economics of that work, given that they'll then lose the uh, they'll then lose the. The, the franchise fees, so whether that balances up again, but they must have thought it was worthwhile. Cardiff, incidentally, is the one that the one boom battle bar site that gets poor reviews. Um, well, no, mostly good, but quite a lot of poor reviews in um, TripAdvisor. There seem to be problems there, in particular with people arguing with the bouncers and then uh, putting up snotty reviews about not being let in. And I saw in the press that one of the one of the customers bit a chunk out of the bouncer's hand. So it, Cardiff sounds um, a bit rowdy on a night out, quite frankly. As one of the reader comments, um, it's probably not the time to be buying hospitality shares at the moment because of the uh, the macro picture, but which is a fair point. But my point, my counter for that is that that's what everybody thinks. So nobody's buying these things, and that's why they're cheap. So at some point, you know, um, I think XP Factory is cheap given the scale of the rollout. It's so rapid. You know, this is going, this is going from nothing basically to forty million a year revenues next year, and and fifty or sixty million the year after. There's a very good note from Shaw Capital. So, <clears throat> and they're getting amazing deals on the sites, and the sites are performing to plan. It also said, very interestingly, current trading, there's no discernible sign of a downturn, <clears throat> they said. So I think this is such a distinctive format, leisure and bar format with XPF, that it could well ride out the consumer downturn. So I really like that one, but I don't know <clears throat> at what point or at what level the shares bottom out. So maybe it's one to... So I've taken in a, a, an initial stake and I'm going to buy more when um, the market settles a bit. <clears throat> now I looked at Next on Thursday, uh, the behemoth clothing fashion retailer. This is such a great business, isn't it? Their interim results came out. Now, although it's a, a large cap, I wrote a section in... Um, <clears throat> the small cap value reports about it because of the extensive outlook and macro viewpoint that they gave, which is utterly brilliant. The key, so see what Thursday's report for that if you haven't got time to read Next's own announcement. The key takeaway on that was inflation. What they said was that the uh, sterling weakness against the dollar, and obviously remember that most other major currencies have been very weak against the dollar as well, but sterling has been particularly weak at the time they wrote this report, but obviously it's bounced significantly since then, um, but not enough to undermine the point they're making. What they said was this is going to cause continued uh, inflation in their selling prices, which are currently running at about 8%. 
they hedged their, their currency forward. And basically, they've said the first half of 2023, they'll have to be raising by 8% year on year. But the second half of 2023, they may have to increase this, increase prices by more than 8%. So because of the, the current weakness of, of sterling against the dollar, I thought that was very interesting because uh, it basically says that there is a risk of inflation not declining as rapidly as the Bank of England and everyone else seems to think it's going to be. They're forecasting it sort of plummeting down to about 2%. Uh, by the end of 2023. So I think Next's outlook does raise a few question marks over that. But look, I'm not an economic modeler, so I'll leave it to them to uh, to come up with the statistics. But I do think it's interesting to listen to com what companies are saying at the coalface. The other thing is, will, will consumers tolerate 8% pe uh, price rises? It's all very well saying Next, Next saying they're going to put the prices up by 8%. But of course, elasticity of demand comes in. At what point do consumers look at the product and say, well, I'm not paying that. I'm going to wait for it to go into half price sale at the end of the season. So next, that's the risk with next, isn't it? That it may not be able to push through these price rises as easily as it seems to think. That said, <clears throat> they've only trimmed their forecasts for the full year and it still looks uh, fabulous business. Um, next guidance tends to be pretty reliable. They offer often a guide too, too pessimistically. And they're saying, I think, 547 pence earnings per share. So you can buy next shares on a PE of nine. The balance sheet's great. It, forget the debt because it's it, it's considerably exceeded by the Consumer Credit Receivables book. So actually, those two counter each other. I think, I think you know, I, I sometimes wonder why the hell am I buying small caps when you can get a quality business like Next on a PE of nine. So I really like that one. And I might buy some, actually, because I don't have to just stick to, to small caps. Uh, Loop Up did a placing, um, I, which was, which I think was at 5p. I really think that they've got a problem with cash burn. Yeah, I've got to look at the interim figures. They came out, I think, on Friday. Now, um, OK, on to mystery share number two. Good. That was a bit more mysterious, wasn't it? OK, I'm not going to say much about this, but see Thursday's report for, I think, an absolute cracking share, which um, is, is um, trading its socks off. Really, really good interim results. A very good outlook as well. Uh, the balance sheet's fine. Um, and it's upgraded, I think... Um, Earnings expectations have been upgraded several times this year and they've upgraded them again and the valuation is still reasonable. So I think this is very interesting. Have a look at that one in Thursday's report. On Thursday, we also covered a takeover bid for Attract, ATQT, which uh, looks opportunistic when you look at the chart, but when you look at the company's performance and history, I think it's a fair price. So I think that's a, a lucky escape in some ways for attract shareholders but it's another example of how a software company we've had lots of these and apparently poorly well a poor, no not about a, 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 let me let me try that again a software company that's performing badly year after year after year raising money repeatedly and so on suddenly gets a bid for a price that doesn't make any sense at all based on its historic numbers and I think what's interesting about this is we've seen loads of these happen where there's obviously some value that, that in, in the company in the software to a bidder which is above the standalone value of the company so I think that's what that's what makes the software sector actually very very interesting even in this downturn 
we're seeing so so you can't just put it down to um you know tech boom madness because um yeah so i think you know does the current performance or even the historic performance of software companies matter that much if they've got something that an acquirer can bolt on and cross sell I don't know. So that's just an interesting thought, I think, on software on the software sector. Now, Graham looked at the um, plush cinema chain called E-Man, E-M-A-N, and he also looked at a long-standing favourite of his called Volvero, or I don't know how that's pronounced, V-L-E. Uh, very, very good, very balanced sections from Graham there. I think he's really... Um, Excellent. I, I tend to get more excited on the upside and downside, whereas Graham's very, I think, very balanced with his reporting, even if he owns a share himself. So I could certainly take a, a leaf out of Graham's book uh, for that approach, which I'll try to do in future. Now, Friday, I'm afraid it was absolute dross reporting on Friday, um, and I covered four things negatively, I'm afraid. Uh, well, not quite, actually, but McBride, MCB, put out the first one. Now, this is this business is in real trouble, really horribly overgeared. However, they've managed to get away a really convincing refinancing. I've, I'm absolutely stunned at the deal they've done with the, with the banks. They've basically given it a two-year breathing space, waiving uh, or deferring, well, yeah, waiving for two years the key covenant of um, net debt to EBITDA. So that gives the, the management time to sort the business out. But the balance sheet's horrendous. It's just got way, way, way too much bank debt. It's loss-making now, McBride is. It makes um, you know things like shampoo and all those sort of personal and care and cleaning products, sells them to the supermarkets, obviously, um, you know, who don't who, who 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 drive the hardest bargain they can, finding it difficult to they are putting through price rises, particularly in H two they got through bigger price rises, but they described um they're suffering huge cost price inflation and there's there's then a time lag to passing that on but with this two-year breathing space from the banks i think you know the idea that mcbride could go bust imminently which was certainly uh, the way it looked up until um friday is now uh, very much changed for the positive so that's uh, uh worth recognizing i don't think mcbride is likely to go bust anymore for the time being um but the uh, the downside is then you then look at the valuation of the equity and, and and think well actually it's probably not worth anything because it's it's making losses and it's got this giant burden of bank debt which of course has got to be repaid or refinanced at some point so i think the currently the equity at mcbride looks to me worth nothing but obviously it's it's effectively a call option in this type of situation isn't it if you buy the equity um, on the basis that the, the if the business does convincingly turn around, and they seem to have a proper strategy to try and do that, then um, all, all the benefit of that should flow to equity, uh, and that gives you it's a geared upside turnaround type of thing. But for me, risk reward isn't good enough to interest me. Now I also looked at Made.com, uh, which put out its interim results. Uh, I think this is bust. I remain of that view. And the going concern statement I would point people towards because I think it's deeply flawed. They're saying that they think they can continue, but that's because um, they they believe that they can get persuade somebody with deep pockets to buy the company. But they then go on to say uh, that they don't know if that can happen quickly enough for the business to survive. And they then go on to say that they've got no evidence that anybody's going to be interested in buying it. So how uh, that got signed off as a going concern statement, I do not know. I think we're probably only weeks away from made.com 
going bust, I'm afraid. So I would be very careful if you want to play around with that one. But very often when these companies are in their death throes, uh, because it's burning cash at an absolutely prodigious rate, um, and of course, when when it look and, and most of that cash is actually customer deposits. If you look at the deferred income line, so uh, you know, it really, management won't have any choice but to pull the plug and appoint administrators. Because of course, if you trade whilst insolvent, and I think they're getting close to that point, then directors become legally responsible for the debts of the company. So they don't have any choice about calling in administrators once it reaches reaches a certain tipping point when the advisors say, well, hang on, you know, this is now, you really have to pull the plug on this. So I I, th- I would be very careful about trying to trade made.com shares. Although you often find it, as I was saying, in, the, in their death throes, these companies can actually do quick multi-bagging moves, you know, go from 3p to 10p or 15p, and then it goes bust. We saw that with Thomas Cook. We've seen that with a lot of these things. So I think shorting them right at the end is very dangerous. You know, if you do, I think it's best to keep the short position small so that if it does spike up three, four, five fold, you know, you can um, you can withstand that. And why take the risk? I think the, the smart money's been made on shorting, I think. Why take the risk just for the last little scrap? And of course, it, it takes quite a while for the spread bet companies to pay out when these things are suspended pending clarification of the financial position, which is code for we're bust. When that happens... Your spread bet company will then demand, could, or it's happened to me before, if you're short, they can demand 100% margin. So you suddenly have to, which is ridiculous, because the company's bust, but you have to stump up a load of extra cash, which can then be frozen for six months or whatever. Hence, I don't think it's clever being short of things when they actually do go bust. Better to just bank your profit on the short position and avoid all that, tying up all that capital for quite a long time. Um, Now, I looked at TPX. TPX. This used to be called the Panoply. Horrible profit warning, and uh, but it's an H1 profit warning. Shares dropped about 60%. I have to say, and it's unusual for me to say this, I think this is an overreaction. Um, the founder, CEO and CFO have stepped down in a very unusual um, move, but they've appointed a guy who used to be head of ENY, Ernst & Young's uh, public sector division, who seems to have very relevant uh, experience because that's what uh, TPX focuses on. It's um, software consultancies targeting the private sector. Historically, it's been nicely cash generative, doesn't capitalise R&D spend. Um, the balance sheet, a bit of an issue. I don't like the £18 million loan there. And obviously now you've got the dreaded H2 waiting. They're saying we completely messed up uh, a, a uh, a strategy of centralising a lot of functions, which they've completely bungled. And they, they admit that. And the CFO and CEO say, look, we don't think we've got the right skills to take this business forward. They still own 15% of the company and they're remaining with the company. One's becoming a NED, one's becoming a uh, director of something or other, you know, which sounds like a, actually a non-directorship. But anyway, I don't know. I think it looks really intriguing, this one. The danger is, of course, that the new guy comes in. Oh, and an interim CFO is stepping up to be the new CFO. The danger is, of course, the new guy's kitchen sink it and say, actually, you know, I don't care if they're going to write off a load of goodwill. That doesn't matter. But um, if they uh, say, oh, there's actually a load of skeletons in the cupboard, blah, 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 that's your big risk, isn't it? But I think I have to say TPX, I've put it on my... Um, on my watch list because I think that could be an interesting turnaround turnaround at some point 
but I don't know when. I also looked at XSG. This is this dreadful thing, Xeros, that um, invented these washing machines that use pl uh, plastic beads or something that need hardly any water. It's been a disaster. Like so many Jam Tomorrow Blue Sky things, it's been listed eight years, and the number of shares have gone up from one million to now something over 200 million. Um, it's done a, a deeply discounted placing. I think that was at 5p as well. 73% discount or something. Really shocking. However, readers of the Small Cap Valley reports were warned that this needed to do a fundraising back in March. So, you know, I would say one of our key, key USPs at the moment for the Small Cap Valley reports is that we've got this massive archive of over 500 companies, small caps, in the UK, uh, where... I've done the balance sheet analysis and I always flag up. I, I've always focused on balance sheets. That's my, 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 my key thing I do that other uh, commentators don't do. And I look, at, I look at cash flow statements as well. We just dig into deeper detail than you get um, from in, in other, almost all other uh, commentary. And we're unbiased, of course. So this, these, these are genuine independent views. Um, one of the a CEO of one of the one of the medium-sized brokerages said that to me. He said to he, to, he said to me, you know, I've said to my analysts and, and my fund managers, look, read the, read Paul Scott's and Graham Neary's stuff because it's an independent opinion. They're right sometimes, they're wrong sometimes, but you know you need you, you, you know you, this is how independent professional investors perceive uh, companies or how. Two, two individuals do maybe but uh, so I, th I think that and again the fact that we do look at the balance sheets and we do flag up if companies need to do a placing because I'm, I'm that you know I may not be good at stock picking necessarily or uh, predicting what the markets are going to do and I'm terrible at managing my own money it's a good thing I don't manage money for other people because I'm rubbish at portfolio management and I'm happy to admit that uh, but I think we are good at the individual company analysis so the idea is you can use those Stockopedia reports as part of your research process. I know a lot of people do that. Don't just blindly follow us because we'll be right on some things and wrong on plenty of things. But I think it is a good independent view and we will flag up to you, in, and we do, in, in every company I analyse, I check the balance sheet and tell you how it's structured. So that, I think, is, is a goldmine of information right now when banks uh, are obviously um, getting jittery, interest rates going up a lot. So highly indebted companies, you're now really potentially in trouble, even if, you know, if, you, even if the bank don't pull, pull, pull the plug, which is, is very rare with listed companies. Um, you know, they can force companies into doing uh, a placing to uh, prop things up, which, of course, as we've seen with Loop Up and with... Um, uh, what was the other one? XS, XSG. You know, these placings for loss-making, cash-burning companies, you, you know, are just done at huge discounts. And even, well, Loop Up, they had big support from one deep-pocketed existing shareholder. But if they hadn't have done, I think they probably wouldn't have been, wouldn't have been able to get it away. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe they'd have had to have just done it at 1p just to get just to keep the thing going. So you, you're totally in the hands of the fund, fund managers. They dictate the price of placings. I've been involved in a, in a few in the past, and you know it's the key institutional shareholders that dictate the price. And you know if they want to play hardball, then as 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 independent private investors, you just you know you just get absolutely slaughtered. So we've got to avoid companies that have um, an immediate need 
for cash, I think, or not when I say immediate, actually, you know, in the, in, in the next year anyway. If it's further out than a year, maybe things might have settled down a bit. But even then you're taking a risk, aren't you? And the market will anticipate that and people will sell the shares because they'll say, well, hang on, it's going to have to raise money next year. So uh, I want to get out. And that's the sensible thing to do. Let's be clear. Otherwise, you're really just gambling. So um, that's my main theme, really, for this week on individual company shares. Check those balance sheets. See how much gearing it's got. If they've got a lot of debt, you need to find out, is the interest rate fixed or are they subject to floating um, interest rates? Have they got swap arrangements in and so on? So digging into that detail and finding out. Whereas, you know, if you look at Saga, for example, all the interest rates are fixed. So when you've got 700 odd million of debt, that's really, really important point. So, uh, and again, uh, normally I cover that sort of thing in the small cap value report. So we've got a really, really key uh, advantage uh, to help you, I think, uh, uh, at the moment in terms of what we what we publish. Uh, okay, uh, well, <laughs> I haven't got time for macro now, so I'll do a separate, I'll do a separate audio for macro, I think. Sorry about that. Okay, thanks for listening and good luck and keep your heads above water. You know, these bear markets are, are, are horrible. You've got to keep a clear head, I think, uh, make rational decisions. And sometimes that might be to sell stuff and sit on the sidelines, although it, it, it feels rather too late on a lot of that. And if you're not using gearing, you can ride this out if you want to, if you've got the stomach to ride it out. I don't know. Everyone's different on that, but it's bloody difficult at the moment. And we're all finding it incredibly difficult. And, uh, you know, let's talk to each other. Let's share stories several of the stockopedia readers put up lovely uh, comments this week where they just said they're finding life really difficult at the moment and um i think that's great get it off your chest uh other investors will will sympathize and um share our horror stories i mean i'm having an absolute nightmare of a year and i'm happy to admit that if it makes other people feel better i think i'm currently down about 48 percent because my small cap stuff is mostly consumer facing, which has been the worst area to be in. So, but I'm not going to sell any of them because I think they're all great companies. So, uh, you know, and I don't need the money, hopefully for many, many years. So actually uh, ignoring the portfolio valuations is, is where I'm at. But I do have to look at each stock and really keep saying to myself, am I right to be continuing to hold that? Am I being blase about the risk, which I might be? I've got one position. Uh, where I am starting to wonder, maybe I've been a bit overconfident on that. But anyway, and I'm not talking about Boohoo. Obviously, this, this ship has sailed on that a long time ago. But, uh, you know, we're all in the same boat. And, you know, anybody who's, uh, you know, doing, who's only sort of minus 10 or even minus 15% down this year, you're doing bloody well and well done. So, uh, yeah, yeah. And those of us who are doing a lot worse than that, you know, we'll survive. We'll get through it and we'll make the money back in the next bull market. So uh, don't let it overshadow your enjoyment of life. That's probably my, my key message again. All right, then I'll wrap that up and then I'm going to do a separate podcast on macro. OK, thanks again. Bye.